Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I feel like this is going to be a incredibly fun hour. I'm looking forward to uh, both guests that I have on this hour, but uh, William Edgar is my first guest, and he is a jazz pianist professor, and he is uh, an amazing resource, and we're going to learn about jazz and the gospel. And William, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your book. It's called The Supreme Love, The Music of Jazz and the Hope of the Gospel. And you say they're pretty tightly connected. That's right. They are. It's a long story, ultimately a very happy marriage. Um, <laughs> so I was so glad to be able to research that. So I'm looking at your book, and of course, you've got a, a forward uh, by Carl and Karen Ellis, who are friends of mine, and I'm a big fan of theirs. And you are uh, a jazz professor, and where do you work? So I'm a professor of Christian apologetics at Westminster Seminary. Okay, awesome. Uh, I wish I were a jazz professor. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm thinking that you probably, you've been playing jazz piano for how many years? Oh, since I was a teenager, I guess. Long time ago. Yeah. So when we look at the gospel and we look at jazz, how do you say that these two are so inseparable? I'd love I'd love to hear that. Well, it's a long, long story. Um how to answer that in a few words. Well, uh jazz comes out of the experience of African Americans in slavery. And uh First, the music was uh, spirituals and some other rhythmical African sounds. Then it turned into blues. And then um, in the early 20th century, jazz. Um, But you cannot separate the beauties of jazz from both the hardship and the hope of uh, African-Americans enslaved and then and then liberated. Yeah, because jazz has got all kinds of hope in it, and then it also has that deep sorrow and lament, and that certainly is the the historically uh, black pr- uh, perspective on this. So um, talk about resilience and hope uh, through the music. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, every culture has a musical expression of some kind, and... Um, especially oppressed cultures have uh, used music as a a way, not just of release, uh, but of expressing humanity beyond uh, the dehumanizing oppression. And jazz certainly qualifies as a a wonderfully humanizing music. Mm -hmm. William Edgar is my guest. His book is called A Supreme Love, The Music of Jazz and the Hope of the Gospel. I'd love to get into some of the musicians that you talk about inside uh, your book, A Supreme Love, um, and who are maybe some of your personal favorites. 
Well, gosh, that's it's a long list, but um, I know I'd have to start with uh, Louis Armstrong. Uh, we call him Pop. Uh, he was, uh, in many ways, the founder of jazz, and his um, joy, his improvisations, his creative use of European and African sounds uh, really set the tone for much uh, of the music uh, to come. And if you listen to him, he's just as fresh as when he was playing in the twentieth in the twenties. Um, I love Duke Ellington, uh, the greatest composer in America, the, a wonderful orchestrator uh, whose life purpose was to help people understand the African-American experience and also to glorify God. Um, the great pianist Art Tatum, uh, inimitable technician, but um, creative arranger of uh, mostly jazz standards, um, unsurpassed uh, in his output. And then you move to more modern times, uh, Errol Garner, uh, you mentioned Miles Davis, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, um, and the person I dedicated the book to is Monty Alexander, who is a Jamaican-American and is steeped in tradition and yet modern at the same time. Now, that's a very short list, which could be expanded a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, William, I'd love for you to talk about life and music during slavery. Well, um, you know, when Africans were captured and brought over in what we call the mid-passage, um, they were expected to come to the deck and entertain white people. Hmm. And um, they did so under duress, but uh, and they couldn't retain much because it had, they'd been so deprived. The one thing they did retain was rhythm uh, and to some extent melody. Uh, they, they used their body as a percussion instrument. They sang uh, wonderful harmonies. And um, so the music originated in those circumstances of hardship and then developed in, um, in the middle of slavery, in the plantations, in some of the churches they were allowed to attend. Um, so uh it's a it's a remarkable uh source and generative power that came out of the experience of slavery and emancipation yeah well i'm so glad to hear you sharing on that and so glad to have you on the, the program today and um you know growing up in a household and listening to jazz and blues and r&b and you know um and just gospel, uh, the stories and the the resilience of African people um, is amazing. And I just come back this summer from doing a Southern Civil Rights tour, and we were in Memphis um, looking at blues and, and jazz. But even during slavery time, music was used as a means um, of of you know resistance, of finding ways to be able to share. Uh, songs to help people on the Underground Railroad. So like Swing Low Sweet Chariot, that, that wasn't just singing happy music. It, w- it was it was music sharing like the Lord, you know, and the railroad and ways to travel north out of this kind of slave captivity that people found themselves in. Absolutely right. Um, most of the great spirituals 
in fact, have a double meaning. Uh, the first meaning is usually some biblical allusion or an allusion to a, a Bible hero, but the secondary meaning is often a message, uh, and it could be a message of liberation coming soon or uh, following a path on the railroad, as you suggest. Um, it could be a, a message of hope uh, for heaven. Um, for example, spirituals about um, Canaan land are spirituals that also point to Canada as a place of freedom. So you don't want to just spend too much time decoding the music, but it's just to say that um, it brought all kinds of uh, content and meaning beyond simply the immediate illusions. Mm-hmm. William Edgar is our guest, and his book is The Supreme Love, The Music of Jazz and the Hope of the Gospel. I, I would love, uh, William, for you to talk about the, the gospel during slavery. Yeah, well, um, uh, there was a, a long history of uh, biblical faith in Africa before uh, enslavement, and uh, so it was never entirely absent. Um, you know, think of uh, the Queen of Sheba and so many others uh, in the background. And then um, when they came over, uh, they found that um, the, the Christian faith was expressed to them in all kinds of ways. Uh, evangelists, both black and white, had compassion and brought the message. Um, some Northerners, mostly, uh, had a burden that black people learn how to read so that they could read the Bible. And when they did, they immediately identified with Jesus and um, the great figures, uh, you know, Moses and Daniel and so forth. So the the gospel came to the enslaved community in many different ways. Um, Sometimes they were allowed to go to church, and they sat in the back, of course, but they heard the psalms sung a cappella, and they were very drawn to that music because a lot of African music is a cappella. And um, this was a a clear biblical message. So uh, the black church has been probably the single most vital institution in bringing slaves to become African-Americans. Long story, many bumps along the road, but um, the church is an indispensable institution uh, for the slaves. So true. Amen. Amen is right. We'll take a little break. Our My guest is William Edgar. His book is called The Supreme Love, The Music of Jazz and the Hope of the Gospel. We will be right back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today.
Welcome back to the show. My guest is William Edgar. He's written a book called The Supreme Love, the music of jazz and the hope of the gospel. I even said to David Miles, you should stick around after the Monday afternoon mix. And uh, he said, yes. Absolutely. And just during the break, you, again, you came up with another really interesting point, uh, David, when you think about the lament of slavery and, and the pain and suffering that produced this amazing music. Yeah, you know, Dr. Edgar, I was I was sitting there thinking like one-third of our psalms are precatory. They're like lament. And, you know, in good ways, we have a tri- triumphalism that's a part of our American culture. Um, but in your study of the gospel and even of hope and even of suffering, um, what are the ways that through suffering and through... Um, resistance and resilience and and things like that with slavery that you studied did did you see kind of like the sweet nectar get squeezed out with jazz in a way that only things like suffering and the like can do yeah that's a lovely question um and it would take weeks to answer properly <laughs> but um zora neale hurston the great african-american authors said that jazz was uh, beauty out of ashes and uh, I don't know that there's any more apt expression than that. Um, the ashes, as you said, are the laments. And it's not just the Psalms, but it's uh, so many of the prophets, the weeping prophets and uh, Job and others who uh, who faced unspeakable difficulty. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself suffered more than anyone else has ever suffered. Um, because he was God. Um, At the same time, uh, there is a hope, which God himself is the author of, um, which is uh, redemption. Uh, God uh, has given this hope to his people and to people around the world in the form of uh, what we call in theology the substitutionary atonement. Uh, Jesus, uh, who took my place and your place and the place of sinners on the cross and received the full uh, load of God's wrath so that we would not have to, and then was raised from the dead in order to uh, justify the, those who have faith. Um, and that, all that, that message translated very, very powerfully into the music of spirituals and blues and ragtime and jazz, and um, it's a it's a legacy that's really immortal. William, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the blues because we haven't gotten there yet, and I would I'd love for you to say more about that um, and how it all came about. Well, the blues came in, into its own in the era of Reconstruction, sometimes known as the Jim Crow era, um, as, as you know. Uh, the Declaration of uh, Emancipa- Emancipation was a, a hopeful moment, but it didn't last long because of the hardship imposed in the years after the Civil War. And blues emerged as a way of uh, commenting on that injustice and that hardship. But it always has uh, a twinkle of the eye, a hope. Of, uh, it's full of humor. And uh, the themes of the blues, which include uh, lost love, um, hardship, uh, working conditions, and so forth, are themes which 
um, really come at least indirectly from uh, the scriptures. Uh, one of my theories, as I elaborate this in the book, um, is that uh, blues poetry is very close to uh, Hebrew poetry, mm-hmm. parallelism. And the wisdom of that Hebrew poetry is very similar to the ultimate wisdom that comes out of the blues. Now, not all blues is is so savory. Uh, there's a lot of raunchy stuff and stuff you wouldn't want your kids to listen to. But there's also uh, this amazing, uh, what one scholar calls theodicy, seeing the justice of God in the midst of hardship. So the blues is a very important building block that leads to jazz. And without uh, without blues, there wouldn't be a jazz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did jazz come into being? Uh, that's a mystery. Uh, I liken it to the miracle of um, Renaissance art, Impressionism, things that uh, emerged for certain reasons we can divine and others we can't. Um, it was born almost exactly in 1900. Um, its immediate source was the marching band. And not just any marching band, but uh, the funeral band. Um, in many southern cities, uh, you belonged to a social society, Oddfellows, and each of these had their bands and played at the funeral. Um, and the pattern was when the body was being celebrated in the church, music of lament. And then they marched out to the grave, and when the body was interred, um, the band would light up. Uh, you know, the, when the saints come marching in, or uh, Lord, didn't he l- ramble? And uh, <laughs> that's you know, as as uh, Jelly Roll Morton said, one of my other favorites. Um, the the Calvinism of this message was perfect. You you cry at the birth. And rejoice at the death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that's really amazing. And during the turn of that 1900s um, um, time frame, you know our country, with kind of the terrorism of Jim Crow and the peonage, debt peonage, and stuff that happened. Uh, one thing that even astonished um, you know Hitler about America was that they didn't advertise Auschwitz, but there was very much public lynching and torturing and burning at the stake. Of people, and so there's this deep dehumanization of black and brown bodies, and uh, and it was very public. So, in some sense, you know, did you find that there was this 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 part of lamenting death, you know, but also the celebration of the reality of the gospel that this person um, had been freed from this this earthly journey, this earthly toil. Yeah, that's very well put. Um... Very strange and uh, ironic that Hitler admired America for all the wrong reasons. Um, He claimed to have learned from lynching um, about how to systematically eradicate people. Uh, Very perverse stuff. And um, that's one of the sad realities of America. We're making progress very slowly. The civil rights movement helped a lot. Um, And so the message of liberation is there slowly emerging uh like a point of light um but we 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 are not fully 
liberated at all from these dark sins of our of our history. Yeah, and that's that's the beauty, and I love that you're sharing this about the beauty of the gospel. Um, you know, I've shared with Bill and Rosalie that outside of my outside of my Bible, probably one of my biggest uh, annotated, oh my goodness, reads. Uh, was um, James Q. Whitman, who's a legal historian at Yale, his book, uh, Hitler's American Model, which is based off the um, you know, June 4th, 1935 meeting um, that dealt with the Nuremberg blood citizen and flag laws. And it's a transcribed meeting that details that when they were looking at handling the Jewish problem, they started and said, well, where did the Americans start? Because we were like the leading race case. And so it's it's a fascinating book uh, to read. It's a crazy book to read because you're reading these these names of Nazi Jewish and legal people, um, like actively arguing against the insanity of American law and practice. And it's such a mind bend. And for a person that stood in the ovens at Auschwitz, it truly is one of the craziest things. And yet the gospel and your Diedrich Bonhoeffers and the church today has an opportunity to speak beautifully, not just with words, but I think as you're noting, the beautiful sound of jazz and the gospel that that flows through through worship and flows through all forms of music. Yeah. So, w- William, do you have a uh, jazz band that plays at your church? Do you, do you participate in a little jazz group at your church? Uh, yeah. I, um, well, I'm retired now, but um, when I was performing... Um, we played in a number of churches. One of our favorite gigs was um, a place called St. Gabriel's, uh, which is an Episcopal church. Uh, the liturgy of uh, the Episcopal church is is remarkably appropriate uh, for for jazz. Um, the temptation is to entertain, which is right. not what we, what we tried. We try to, to avoid that. We, we tried to worship and, um, so you know, words of adoration, words of forgiveness, um, and and the sermon and so on. All of those were wonderfully annotated by um, this music. So that's one of the joys of my life is performing in uh, in in a church like that, and um, or listen or listening in to churches that do it that do it well. So interesting. Um, a lot of people are very interested in your book. I just got a nice email from a, a listener that said there's a library near me that has uh, his book on order. I've already placed a hold on it. Hey. And there's a lot of people very interested. And again, the name of the book is A Supreme Love, The Music of Jazz and the Hope of the Gospel. And its author is William Edgar, who's been our guest this uh here on the show. So William, mm. thank you so much for taking this time and it's just been a delight meeting you and Amen. I'm just such a huge fan of jazz. So I appreciate having a real pro on the show. Well, you're welcome. And I thought your comments were very enlightening. So I'm not speaking to, uh, you know, a kind of a blank slate. It's really encouraging. Oh, good. So thank you so much for uh, promoting the book and, and for your wonderful um encouragement. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. Okay. Bye. You bet. bet. William Edgar again has been my guest and the book is A Supreme Love, The Music of Jazz and the Hope of the Gospel. Dr. Ann Bradley is next.
All right, here's a headline I'm looking at. 72% of economists expect a U.S. recession by the middle of next year. Fortunately, I've got my favorite economist on the line. Dr. Ann Bradley is joining me, and I'm curious, Ann, are you in that 72% group? I'm in the I'm still watching it group. Okay. I think it's very possible. So I think that... You know, here's the thing, and it's funny because right now we're speaking on the radio, and you don't get invited back to radio interviews if you always say it depends to every <laughs> answer, right? Yeah. As the answer to every question, it's the kind of the classic economist who wants to uh, not say too much. But I think it does depend. We're not there yet, is my opinion. So some people believe that we're in a recession, and I think – uh, in a recent summer survey, um, when just um, citizens were surveyed, uh, an overwhelming percentage thought that we were in a mm-hmm. in a recession. You mm-hmm. know, so I think there's public perceptions of of a recession, and I think there's economists who are trying to really closely measure the various factors that would indicate that we're in a recession. So I think it's very possible uh, the Fed is going to meet in September. And I think people are really watching to see what decisions are going to be made there. Um, because, you know, as we've talked about before, I think that in particular, the past two years uh, have just been lots of money, lots of um, credit entering the system. And that has led to basically overproduction. And so the economy was really hot and now it's not. <laughs> and so, you know, the Fed has tools at its disposal to try to ward off, yeah. uh, to try to, you know, fix inflation, the problems that we're having. And they're going to, of course, try to avoid a recession. But if I can say this one more thing, I, you know, the, the biggest lesson that I would want anybody to take from thinking about economics is that the economy is not a machine invented by smart people and tinkered with by smart people when it doesn't work the way we want it to. And unfortunately, policymakers and members of the Federal Reserve often treat the economy as such, a machine that we can kind of tinker with on the, on the margins and it will do exactly what we want. And that's just not how economies work. So this is tricky. So that's why I say I think we could get to a recession if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're there yet. So the Federal Reserve is probably it's unlikely to tame inflation. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Without well, without pushing the economy into a recession? This is the dance. Yes. This is the dance okay. that, that is being done right now, right? And yes. so the Jackson Hole meeting, which is the traditional Federal Reserve location for meeting, uh, this is what is going to be discussed. And as we've seen, we had two back-to-back um, basis point uh, raises. And so we've seen that filter into different markets. And so They've done things to try to get there, um, but it's like, you know, if you're driving a car and you slam on the brakes, you can actually cause a lot of damage, and you might not need to slam on the brakes. You might just need to slow down, and so when you're making those decisions in real time, it's a challenging thing to do, and that's not even a good analogy because that, again, you know, driving a car, um, you know, there's there's less variables in your face in some way a, as an economy and what an interest rate looks like and what inflation is. And so 
this is tricky, and they have tough work to do to try to mitigate the balance that we're talking about. They mm-hmm. want to avoid a recession, but they want to curb inflation, which is hurting Americans. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She is a George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Fund for American Studies Vice President of Academic Affairs. So always really glad to have you on, Ann. Um, when you listen as an economist, to the messaging that's coming from the news, what do you think? How does it fall on your ears? I mean, I I did remember hearing in July there was zero inflation in July. And I thought, well, that doesn't feel great, but I wonder what Ann Bradley would think. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I think what we're seeing, so this zero inflation, and you have to realize, too, all of this is very politically charged, and, and we could talk about that in a moment. But what happened, we, we measure inflation month to month. Um, Bureau of Labor and Statistics does this, and then we measure it from year to year. And so if you look at where we are now versus where we were last year, inflation is high. Mm-hmm. It's almost 9%. If you look at the changes from month to month, that was the 0% inflation. And so basically, when you look at the numbers, here's what happened, essentially, is that you had a decline in gasoline prices and a, a, an increase in some food and shelter prices. And so it basically washed out to a 0% change, if that makes sense. So overall, the number did not move from June to July. So that's Good, right? De- decreasing gas prices are really important. What we're trying to figure out now is is what's going on behind those declines. Uh, one of the reasons, you know, when so when you're an economist and you think about this, you in your head look at those supply and demand curves and you say, okay, I want to take it right back to the principles, right to the to the core of economic, you know, the economic way of thinking. And it's either a demand issue or it's a supply issue. And so, how do we think through that? So. Uh, what some people are talking about is that, that people are changing their behavior, and that has allowed them to reduce their consumption of gas. And so um, that reduces the demand for gas, which would all else equal lower the price. And so think about when gas prices are really high. You're driving to work every day. You're driving a kid, your kids to school, to practices, all of the things that you're doing every day. Just because gas prices go up month to month to month. It's hard to change your routine. You can't just say, well, I'm not taking my kids to school anymore. Or, Sorry, right. I'm not showing up at work anymore, right? You can't just make immediate changes for something so fundamental like putting gas in your vehicles. But over time, you can make those changes. You can change vacations. You can change um, your location even. You could get a different job. You could uh, work out you know, more work from home perhaps. And so you can you know, catch up to the price changes. And so that may be one of the reasons that we're seeing that these prices are going down. What we really want to see, right, is changes in that supply curve. Because if we get more gas into the market, that's going to increase the supply of gas and all else held equal, that's going to reduce prices of gas. That's what we need. And so that's the ultimate solution to this. That requires innovation. This requires lots of different political conversations about who we buy gas from, where should we be producing it. You know, all those types of conversations are involved in that decision to allow supply to increase. So it's not that's not necessarily an easy fix, but that's the textbook answer to how we can think about what's going on. So right now, it seems like more of a demand-related issue. Um, and the question is, how long will that last? 
So what I'm saying is it's good, but I'm not sure this is a forever type of thing, because ultimately what we need is an increase in the supply of gas, which will cause those prices to go down. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She is a author and professor of economics. And if you have a question for her, I always welcome that. You can text it over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. So, Ann, if we are moving into a recession, what could that mean for the housing market? Well, it already isn't looking great. Um, in terms of the housing market, we're seeing, um, I think sales dropped about 6% from June to July, and they're about 20% down from last year. And so the housing, you know, this is the biggest decline, I think, since, you know, the late 1970s or something like this. So that's a big drop. And I think we're going to have to see what mortgage rates continue to look like. And again, these are also supply and demand issues. But I think the problem is people got used to the market we had a year ago, two years ago, right? Well, especially a year ago, 18 months ago, where Mm -hmm. people were putting their houses on the market and getting offers before they were formally listed. Um, You could just sell your house, especially in suburbs around big cities. You could sell your house very quickly without a lot of effort now we're back to kind of a more normal housing market. And so I think, you know, we have to see where this goes. But uh, people were doing all these refinances of their mortgages because rates were so low. So the refi market was extremely hot, again, 18 months ago. And that has kind of, you know, um, petered out a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're going to see more of that. But the, this is the other thing. And I think we saw this prior to the 2007 recession Real estate is a long-term investment. So I always kind of joke, it's not, you know, it's not the crops table. You're not in Vegas and you don't just buy a house and then, you know, kind of hold on to it for six months to a year and get $200,000 in equity. And it's like winning the lottery. That's not really how typical real estate markets work. And so I think people build up these expectations that they're going to buy a house and they're, you know, not going to have to live in it for very long. And you know, taking home equity loans and all these types of things, which may be reasonable things to do, but you know, the market is just not guaranteed to do that forever. And I think the market was doing that because of the fault of the policies of the Fed for so long, which was injecting a lot of money into the economy, just so making it cheap to borrow. So all these things are are very much connected. Um, so if we, you know, a, a housing market, we're looking at the labor market. Um, those things are going to kind of try give us indicators as we proceed to the next few months as to are we in a recession? And if we aren't, when are we going to be in a recession? Mm-hmm. You know, if the when comes, which we hope it doesn't. Yeah. And what is the inflation rate like as of today? So today it is about eight, uh, 9.1% for okay. increase from the last year. So okay. that's year to year. Where does it have to be where people maybe feel like the sky isn't falling? Yeah, so this is a good question. The Fed um, has, you know, ideas about inflation rates. They want it to be about 2%. So if you think about that as the benchmark, we're yeah. pretty high above that. Yeah, actually, I misspoke. It's 8.5%. So okay. 9.1% was um, June. I'm sorry. So July is 85 so a little bit lower. I think that, you you know... As it goes down, you're going to see people um, 
their money gets freed up. This is what inflation does. It reduces your purchasing power. And it, you don't even really need to say that out loud when it, we have such a high level of inflation because people see it, right? We see it when we book airline tickets. We see it when we go to the grocery store. We see it at the pump. We see it everywhere. So if you're talking about going from 2% to 3% inflation, people might not have such big sticker shock because yeah. it's not. But thinking about, okay, we're 8.5% across the board higher than we were at this time last year. That's a lot. And it's basically about $2,700 um, of your income. You can think about it that way. So it, that's real money, right? And so if you're not getting raises from your employer – that are above 8.5%, then you have a reduced purchasing power. And so, you know, we don't even need to explain that to people. I think what's hard is figuring out how we manage ourselves in a time like this. That's mm -hmm. very hard. We can't just get go get second jobs. You know, these things are not easy. You can't just go ask for a raise. You know, can I have a 10% raise because of the inflation rate? <laughs> um, because, yeah. right, employers are facing the same problem. Um, and so... These things are very tough on American families. Mm -hmm. Take a break. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. If you have a question, anything that's on your mind about the economy, uh, text the question over 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley. She is the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Fund for American Studies. All right, I got some questions uh, f for you, Ann. Here's one. Okay. Uh, I would like to get Ann's take on trickle down economic theory and Reaganomics, both from the '80s, and wonder if she thinks they still pertain or work in today's economic climate. That's a great question. Um, you know, so this idea, I think, of, of trickle-down, I think, unfortunately, it has somewhat of a, a bad ring to it. And so it is, it, it's been disabused as a term, and I think today still. So I, don't, I wouldn't say that it doesn't work, but here's what I think Reagan believed, um, if, I, if I understand what he thought about economics, if I understand that correctly, and what I, I believe to be true about economic growth. And that is to say that a dynamic growing economy is full of entrepreneurs. I mean, you can think about that as small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and then quite large businesses. And of course, big businesses always started out as something little, right? Small businesses. So I think one of the ideas of trickle-down economics is if you, if you end one, one of many, but one of the ideas is if you end kind of or, or lower corporate tax rates, then you're going to spur innovation and that that's going to trickle down, right, to the non-owners, to the non-shareholders and create prosperity for everyone. I do think this is true, right, because taxes are 
um, a source of revenue for any government. And those, of course, state taxes and local taxes and federal taxes. And the government has to have revenue to do things we ask it to do. So, you know, it needs cash, bottom line. But if we overly burden corporations and private individuals with taxes, then you stunt economic growth, right? So Mm -hmm. the balance is in striking the balance is you want taxes that support the necessary functions of government and no more, I would say. And then you want to leave people free to kind of run with their ideas. And so I think that's part of that theory. I think it's absolutely true today. If we, you know, if we burden corporations, but also if we burden people with taxes, car taxes, income taxes, right? All payroll taxes, all those things make it harder for people to be creative and to, for people to be entrepreneurial. I don't love the idea of trickle down because it sounds – the way some people use it is to say, well, this means that we're giving tax breaks for rich people, and so, you know, somehow that's going to help everybody else out. And I think it's much more than that. It's saying let's create a society with economic freedom so that people are liberated to fulfill their purpose, to unleash their human creativity in the most unburdened way possible. That, I think, is a society where you get growing incomes, lots of opportunity, lots of income mobility. And those are the things that we want. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is unloading some of her brain power with us. Here's another question, Ann. If the Fed continues to manipulate things to keep inflation down, doesn't that just perpetuate the problem and push everything further down the road? Wouldn't it be better to feel some short-term pain for the long-term mm-hmm. benefits? The short answer to that question is yes. <laughs> I think the in- intuition of, of the listener is the, is the right thing. And here's the thing. It's the Fed's fault to some extent. It's also the fault of fiscal policy. But um, the money supply expanded by about 40% over the pandemic. That's a lot. And as Milton Friedman said, um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And what he meant by that is that the supply of money has to be met by the demand for money. And we pushed that supply of money far beyond the demand for money and our productive capacities during a pandemic when people were at home. So people weren't shopping. People couldn't go to work in the same way. People couldn't eat out at restaurants. So production slowed down and consumption slowed down. But there was money cranking through the system. So this is there's a clear line of fault here. We also spend too much money, mm-hmm. right? So that's a fiscal problem that has creates other problems in our economy. Um, so I, but I think the intuition is right. If you're gonna, you know, you have to you have to undo that essentially. You have to make it stop. And the only way to make it stop is to, you know, kind of feel the pain now so that we don't just kick the can down the road later, which is what we do all the time with fiscal policy, right? Mm -hmm. So we say we're going to pass these big spending bills and we'll worry about how we're going to pay the money later. And we have 100 years of really good data that show, well, we just keep spending more money. (laughs) It doesn't really matter who the president is. It doesn't really matter who, you know, the, the demographics of Congress from an ideological perspective. We just always spend more money. And so that, at the end of the day, you know, can't be supported in the long term. So we're talking about insolvency for Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, we act surprised when, you know, those programs become insolvent. But we can't we can't kind of have our cake and eat it, too. We have to make hard decisions about monetary policy. And then I think we have to make hard fiscal decisions about spending. Both of those things need to change. But I agree it's going to be tough, but it would be better to just do it and recover 
and let the economy recover rather than tinkering around the edges forever. Now, the other thing I'll say is it's easy for me to, to say that, but I'm not the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So what I will follow up with is, again, the economy is not smart people who create machines and then tinker with them when they're broken. Mm-hmm. So it's not even clear how we fix this. I think they're moving in the right direction. I think they should have done it a lot earlier, but you don't want to go. It's like pushing the brakes too hard. So figuring out what the right next move is is really important. But we don't want to be too timid while also not being too aggressive. Mm-hmm. So it's tough. We've put ourselves in a very tricky spot. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. If you have a question, I still have time for one more, 877-933-2484. Here's a question, Ann. Employers added 528,000 jobs last month, so why does the economy still feel off? I think it feels off because the labor market is very strange in terms of the things that have happened over the past two years. And this is certainly what demarcates right now from the 1970s. Um, So, you know, the 1970s were both lots of inflation and lots of unemployment. Today we have moderate inflation compared to the 1970s and low levels of unemployment. So that's generally good news. But I think why we're feeling it still is that in the retail sector, um, in the restaurant sector, it's very hard to hire. And so I, I still see when I travel um, that there are a variety of, you know, kind of restaurants in the airport that aren't open and they look like they haven't been open for some time. They have never maybe reopened. And I think it's because we're having a hard time finding employees to fill those gaps. I think, Bill, you and I talked before, Amazon was having very uh, $3,000 maybe hiring bonuses. Walmart was offering free college tuition. And so employers are really having to step up to the plate. So I think that's why it feels off. Because you have kind of one part of the economy that seems to be doing well because some of those people that used to take have those jobs have moved to better jobs. And mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Um, but it does feel it, – it's not normal. It doesn't feel like we've gone back to the kind of pre-pandemic times. Mm-hmm. And, Anne, what about retail sales? How are they doing? And do you think with the start of a new school year that there will be a bump in retail? So, I mean, this is something that economists look at, but one of the things we see is we talk about seasonally adjusting the numbers when we look at the consumer price index, which is a measure of inflation. And so um, retail sales usually do well over the Labor Day holiday. Everybody's going back to school. People are buying school supplies. There's Labor Day sales. So I think we need to see what's going to happen. And, of course, everybody's going to be watching this, right, because one of the things we want to see is, is this a sign that maybe we're not going to go into recession? We want GDP to go up. Um, but selling washing machines and selling pencils are very different types of things to sell in an economy. So we don't just want the school supplies Mm -hmm. pumping out in the economy. We want everything. And so I think we have to see, and really this, you know, the, um, um, new Biden inflation reduction act, is that what it's called? I'm sorry. I was was looking for the name. I think this is, you know, gonna, yeah, I think you're right. Inflation reduction act. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, so I think this is going to throw some kinks into the system, too, and so we'll have to see how retail responds to this. So, for example, uh, earlier today I just read that I think it's Ford is laying off 3,000 workers, and they're doing that because they want to make the transition to electric vehicles. Why? Because electric vehicles are nicely subsidized in that 
act in that bill. And so this is going to cause some job transitions and some retail mix ups. So mm-hmm. I think we, we need to keep watching and see what happens as we head into the holiday season as well. See what Americans are ready to do and how, if, if they're willing to spend. And I want to say I brought this up last week on the show, but there was an offer of, I think it was Ford that was getting a $7,500 rebate from the government if you bought electric. But the yes. next day, Ford raised their prices uh, to 8500 per vehicle. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, well, how'd that work out? Exactly. And so one of the big critiques that I have, and I have not, of course, come close to reading the entire contents of what's in there, uh, but I think that this is going to create complicate things and create some special interest group politicking and some, I think, um, the tax code is going to be complicated from this. And who benefits when tax codes are complicated? Wealthy people, mm-hmm. because um, this benefits CPAs and people who find the loopholes for them. So I think we're really just kind of doing another dance of special interest group politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm worried about, you know, this has been touted as something to help the average American. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, if you're thinking about, gosh, inflation is 8.5% and I, I got a 2% raise last year. But they're telling me, you know, go buy, you know, a $70,000 electric vehicle. This just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Right? So yep. so I'm not sure how it helps middle class people or working class people. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Anne, what is on an economist nightstand? Lots of books. I figured. I figured. And some of which have never been cracked, by the way. Okay, and you know, so I'm like, you know, we're all the same, I hope. Oh, but yeah, um, yeah. they say you should have more books than you're able to read. Um, so I have kind of big goals, but they're not all met. And I have my iPod charging station, my devotions, my Alexa, and a lamp. It's not very fancy. Awesome, awesome. Always great having <laughs> you on, Ann. Thank you so much Thanks, for fielding questions, too. Yes, Dr. Ann Bradley's been my guest. Nice. That's all the show we have for today. Thank you for spending time with me. It's been a wonderful afternoon. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you miss any of the show, you can always go to MyFaithRadio.com and check out the podcast. I look forward to spending time with you tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.